Hello and welcome. We're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. It's just difficult for us to appreciate how dangerous these words were by the Apostle Paul who wrote to Timothy, not just describing Jesus Christ as Lord, but Lord of Lords and King of Kings. You've heard the phrase to lord it over someone. That word Lord implies a level of authority, earned or otherwise, doesn't it? In the Bible, Jesus was referred to as Lord and nothing could be more true because that's exactly what he was and is. In fact, it's that very truth that has changed history. Seen the writing of the New Testament, seen churches established, hospitals and schools commenced and so on. Jesus spoke with such authority and his actions confirmed his Lordship. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues in his series on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's join him now for the second message in the series. It was my posthumous mentor, that is uh, someone who had died before I was even born, whom in reading what he had written, deeply touched my life. And when I read his autobiography called My Pilgrimage, he reflected on his ministry of preaching and pastoring over long decades. And this man who was nominated by Banner of Truth Trust as one of the 20th 20 greatest preachers of all time, said his biggest regret in his preaching pastoral ministry is that he didn't talk about God enough. And that really, really touched me. With that in mind, I want to, as we prepare for the Advent season, to really reflect on who was this Christmas child? Who was this person whom the world stops nearly everywhere and and acknowledges this season of Christmas. Who was this person? And so in this series, the, The Lordship of Jesus Christ, I'm exploring some of the things that perhaps have been forgotten. Perhaps they've been forgotten. Perhaps people aren't even aware of them. And so this is one I want to have a look at now. And, and I want to start by saying the expression, Jesus Christ is Lord. It sounds almost like a fridge magnet or something etched into a leather Bible cover, but those words were costly. At the time of the first Christians, those words could have you executed. Because in the Greco-Roman world, Caesar was Lord. That is, hoc Kaiser hoc curios. That is, Caesar is Lord. So the words hoc Christos, hoc curios, that is, Christ is Lord, was deadly. It was a really risky thing to declare that Jesus was Lord. And and it wasn't like the Christians were saying, he's one of many and so is Caesar. They were saying, Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other. This was incredibly uh, radical. It was incredibly controversial. And that's how the church was birthed, completely countercultural to what was going on in the Greco-Roman world at that time. So for the early Christians, this was a costly expression. It wasn't just something they said. It wasn't their fridge magnet. It wasn't their bumper sticker. This was something that ended up literally changing the world. Literally, this transformed the world. From that expression that transformed individual lives, the church of Jesus Christ was founded and even to this day it continues to grow built on that expression that Jesus Christ is Lord. The the sending out of missionaries, that is people who want to take this message, 
called the gospel to people who have never heard it, people who have never come to the knowledge that of the person of Jesus. They, they, they may have heard of Christmas, but they may not know the background, as is probably, probably uh, the background to Western culture itself. This is this expression, Christ is Lord, has spawned the preaching of the gospel in a missionary sense. That is, people have literally laid down their lives either to death or in sacrifice of a life they could have otherwise had in order to preach this message to people who are yet unacquainted with or have been yet unacquainted with the message. In addition to this, and I've got about... Uh, seven or eight points I want to point out here, grounded on this belief that Jesus Christ is Lord, is that the 27 books of the New Testament, which we as Christians take to be divinely inspired, these were written as a result of that expression. Fourthly, hospitals were built. I mean, we, we take hospitals for granted, but before Jesus Christ came, there were no hospitals. Jesus Christ, the great physician, the great healer, who commissioned his first disciples to go out and to heal. And if you've been in part of our healing prayer time at any one of our Sunday morning services here at Lagana, you would know if you have come out for healing, you're asking God to heal you. And this is a long Christian tradition of asking for prayer for healing that we will pray that God will heal you either by miracle or by medicine. And we, we as a church have a higher proportion of doctors, hospital staff and nurses than just about any other church in our city. And that's partly because we believe in this. We believe this is a God-ordained means of grace to heal people by miracle or by medicine. And hospitals were established because of this statement, Christ is Lord. Hoc curios, ho Christos. Christ the Lord. And so schools were commenced. And again, we take it for granted. We, we take public education, public free public education as something. Well, it's always been there. You know, I guess Adam started it with Cain and Abel. No. Free public schools began with Christ. In other words, after Christ came, the Christians organized education. This was a tradition that had begun perhaps in the synagogues where they taught the Torah, but Christians began to teach general education under the belief that Christos, Christ is Lord, therefore every academic educational discipline glorifies Christ. Because he is Lord. Schools were commenced. Universities were commenced. I was talking with someone who was telling me that the university that uh, one of their family members is going to in Holland was founded in the 1600s. And I said, oh, it's a fairly recent university then. And they, they sort of looked at me weirdly. And I said, well, of course, some of the universities that I've visited in Europe were founded around 900 AD. And of course, prior to that, there were things called monasteries, monasteries rather, where people were educated in general education, philosophy, the sciences, theology, 
these were all a part of it. And these morphed into Cambridge, uh, Milan, Oxford, and so on. The oldest universities in the world, around 900, started by Christians because hoc Christos, hoc curios, Christ is Lord. So charities, again, we can assume that charities have been around forever, but it is a foundationally Christian concept to show charity. And if you've read in the King James that famous chapter on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, the, the King James translators used that word, charity, to depict Christian love. That is the helping of people who are unfortunate, to whom it was within our power to collectively help them. Charities were formed, and in our city, there are some tremendous Christian charities. So we, we are a partner with City Mission. We also partner with other charities. We think of the international charities such as Red Cross, founded because of Christian by Christians because of the teachings of Christ and that hoc Christos, hoc curus, Christ is Lord. And eight. Civil governments were constituted in a democratic form. Now, you may assume that democracy has always been the, the, the government of choice. But this is, this is not the case. It was Christians taking the teaching of Christ that every person was created in the image of God and therefore their opinion, their values, their their contribution mattered, and this gave rise to modern democracy. Now, I know that there will be people who will point out that the ancient Greeks had a form of democracy, yeah, where the aristocracy and the oligarchy, that is the elite in a society, got a vote. But Christianity birthed this concept that everybody was entitled to a vote. Every adult was entitled to a vote. So these are some of the things that led to that that led to the things that we now take for granted largely in the western world that we now benefit from because christ is lord so this statement it was not just something that founded the church not just something that is at the foundation of what it means to be a christian but it's also it's also the undergirding idea behind eight of the most important western institutions that we currently take for granted today so in scripture the the bible describes christ coming at a time when there were kings reigning over nations and the bible asserts that he's not just a king he's the king in fact paul writing to timothy describes him as the king of kings and the lord of lords and this came about because christ conquered the most potent force in the universe and no ordinary earthly king had ever done that and that is he conquered death so on the road to damascus when saul of tarsus had received commissioning letters from the high priest to go to damascus and to seek out those betrayers those jews who had now turned away from torah observance to becoming Christians, believing that Christ had fulfilled the Torah, the law of Moses. They no longer needed to participate in temple ceremonies. They no longer needed to identify ethnically or even religiously as a Jew. They were now part of a new family 
under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This man was going to do something about this error in his mind. And so off to Damascus he went. And on the road to Damascus, we read this. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is capital W, the way, that's the original designation of Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a loud voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Now, whoever Paul thought this person who, was a, who appeared to him was, whoever he thought that person was, he knew he was Lord. The answer, and he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. That's, that's an amazing statement. We'll leave it there. So Saul's initial response when he encountered the risen Jesus Christ in what he will later describe as a physical appearance in heavenly glory was to fall down at his knees, an act of worship, and to call him Lord. So from this encounter, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church via his epistle to Timothy. So when we read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, we're actually reading an epistle that was sent to the Ephesian church. But this is what he says to Timothy via the Ephesians. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, as Paul would know, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 to 16. It's perhaps really difficult to appreciate for us today in a culture where you could say Jesus Christ is Lord and people just yawn. People just, yeah, whatever, pass the salt. Or it, it, but in the culture in which that statement originated, it's just difficult for us to appreciate how dangerous these words were by the Apostle Paul who wrote to Timothy, not just describing Jesus Christ as Lord, but Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And pretty soon the original Christians, the first Christians, they would soon realize that this statement by Paul was actually written not just for them, it was written for a wide public audience, which this statement, which we refer to as 1 Timothy, would soon be copied very, very widely. It would be very, very uh, widely distributed. And before 
the the apostle Paul could could stand before Caesar Nero in AD 64, he knew that this statement could cost his life as he stood before Caesar. And it did. Paul was indeed taken down to the dock and beheaded. So this is why I think it shouldn't come as a surprise when we hear that, when we understand this. And many scholars, including myself, if I can put myself in that category, believe that there's an honorific, that means the writer is honouring Paul, there's an honorific reference to Paul's martyrdom in the closing book of the Bible itself, which which I would conject was written in AD 65. And it's recorded in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, which says that some have even been beheaded for the sake of Christ. And I think that's a reference to the Apostle Paul's martyrdom. It was the price of many early Christians that they paid. Not just beheading, but crucifixion, being thrown to lions and so on. Because they refused to recant the statement, Jesus Christ was Lord. And this led to their martyrdom. So when we understand who the early Christians thought Jesus was, it suddenly takes on a whole different dynamic to to realize that their statement was a, a, a costly statement. Literally, it cost many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, during the the reign of terror by Caesar Nero, who killed, many scholars estimate, millions of Christians during his three and a half years of martyrdom reign over Christians. So it, it's just interesting. We, we've got to look at why would the why would these devout Jews convert to Christianity? Why would devout pagans of the Greco-Roman gods, worshippers of the Greco-Roman gods, why would they recant that, walk away from that way of life, that, that thing that they'd been brought up in, the thing that the culture itself promoted, and why would they think this about Jesus? It's, it's just interesting. When, they, when you read the statements, which I believe would have been published very early in the history of Christianity, in other words, as the apostles were dying out, it was, it was incumbent upon them. We need to get this down in writing. And led by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, directed by the Holy Spirit, they produced at least the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and Paul and Peter and Jude and the writer to the Hebrews and others contributed the documents of the New Testament. And we have statements like this that would have dramatically shaped their their view of Jesus. It comes from what we call the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and verse 44. I'm just offering you this as, a, as an example of the thing that was said by Jesus quite frequently. And this is the expression. The prophets declared, well, it goes like this. The prophets declared, thus saith the Lord. This, now, every Jew knew that. Even those non-Jews who were proselytites, that is, they had converted to Judaism, they would know that every prophet essentially began their declarative word from God with the expression, thus saith the Lord. But now, as they read the Gospels, they read Jesus saying this, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You see, Jesus was not 
declaring, thus saith the Lord, he was saying, I saith unto you. And they would have realized what he was saying. What he was saying was that he was Lord. He was Lord. So Christ revealed his lordship in the way that he spoke. Now, I'm not going to deal primarily with what he said. I'm just going to look at how he said it. The way he spoke was with tremendous authority. He didn't ever use the expression, thus says the Lord. He prefaced most of his declarations with either I say unto you or truly, truly, I say to you that and so on. This is in essence a declaration that what he was about to say was completely without error. It had the highest authority. And it was not possible, based on what Christ Christ was saying and invoking, that he believed that what he was saying was incorrect. He believed it was inerrant of the highest authority and not even possible of being wrong. Even for those who heard Christ, those in authority, who came to hear Jesus, they were taken back. We read references where the high, the high priest or the, the, the Jewish council sent out uh, temple uh, officers, go and arrest Jesus. They hear him. These temple officers, they, they hear Jesus. They, they come back to the priests and the, the, the Jewish council and, and, and they're wondering, well, where's Jesus? Why haven't you arrested him? And they say things like this. No one. Let's have a look. This is John 7, verse 45, 46. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers said, no one ever spoke like this man. You see, Jesus spoke as if he was a king who had authority over the officials of Caesar. <laughs> we, we read his exchange with Pontius Pilate in John 18 verse 37, where he declares, My kingdom is not of this world. And then he says, You have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from on high. In other words, from my father. Christ was making a, an emphatic statement the way he spoke, that he was Lord. So when Jesus was brought before the governor, we see that Pontius Pilate felt the presence of a very powerful king, which was why he said, so you are a king then, in John 8, 18 verse 37. This, this reluctance on his part to treat Jesus unjustly, we, we re read it in the Gospels that Pilate was now nervous. Well, because in the Greco-Roman world, it was not a shocking thing to consider that a man could be a god. And now here was someone who had done outstanding miracles that could only have been done by God. And Pilate knew it. And now he was standing before this man to whom he was about to exercise judgment. And he knew that judgment was unjust. And so in tradition, we had this idea that Pilate's wife, Claudia, came and warned him, and this probably would have added to his worries. She came and said, I have just received a dream. 
that this man is no ordinary man and you should not put him to death. And we read that in John's Gospel. Oh boy. So if it hasn't dawned on you yet that maybe Jesus actually was who he claimed to be because in his closing words to his disciples, he said this, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Wow. Why? Because they knew he had conquered what 1 Corinthians 15.26 Paul describes as the last enemy to be conquered, and that is death. So what we have here is this statement, that the, the result of what Jesus Christ said, what he taught and did, has eternally changed the course of human and cosmic history. And we can ground that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, where Jesus says, Not one jot or tittle of what I've said will be done away with. My words will stand for eternity. Wowzers! No one spoke like this. Not in all of history had anyone emphatically declared that his or her words would outlive the universe itself. Heaven and earth will be done away with, but my words will last forever. Wow! One of the heroes of mine was a, a, a profound Dutchman by the name of Abraham Kuyper. He later he was not just a theologian. He uh, he led uh, Holland as its prime minister. He very famously reflected in this statement: "There is not one square inch of anywhere in the universe over which Jesus Christ does not declare mine." Now, with that thought, let's, let's just reflect on this. The way Jesus Christ spoke was as if he actually believed he was Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that no human authority had any power over him, and that no matter what anyone did to him, including kill him, could not stop him. And he demonstrated it by dying on the cross, a cruel Roman torture at the instigation and behest of the Jewish leaders, and then rising from the dead three days later. He conquered death. And the writers of the New Testament declared not just death, he conquered sin and death. And this Jesus, John tells us in his gospel, did not need anyone to tell him what was in the heart or minds of a person. For, John tells us, he knew exactly what every thought of every human was. We cannot think that Jesus Christ was just an ordinary human being. C.S. Lewis says you just, you just cannot even have that option now. Based on what he did, based on what he taught, and, as I hope I've illustrated, based on the way he spoke. And I make this statement. Those who encountered Jesus of Nazareth met someone who knew everything about them. And those who meet him now experience the same thing 
they experience a king, the king of the universe, who knows them and loves them. And with this thought, that the king of the universe who made you and made me and made every atom, who made every quark, who made every latrino, the king of the universe, the creator of all matter, space, time and energy, he knows everything about you. No matter where you're at in life right now, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've done it with or to, he knows it. He knows your highs, he knows your lows, he knows what you're going through. He knows who you are in secret. He knows you behind the mask that you wear in front of others. He knows you. And he unconditionally loves you. And that unconditional love is a transaction that you can have with him right now by surrendering to him. I want to lead you in a prayer, a prayer of surrender, a prayer that quite well could not just change your life today, but for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son on the mission of rescue, redemption and salvation. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you willingly, gladly went at the behest of your father because of his great love for you and your great love for him and your great love for us. That you would come and you would live and you would show us what it means to be truly human and what it means to be in a relationship with God the Father with whom we were created to enjoy. So now, Lord, I pray for all of those who are listening to me right now, who are watching this, whatever means you are communicating this to them, that, Father, you speak right into their hearts now and that, Lord, they would turn to you and say, Father, forgive me. Please forgive me because of what Jesus Christ has now done for me. He's taken my sin, guilt and shame. He's taken it on the cross. He's put it to death that I might be pardoned for eternity. And so, Father, I thank you for that pardon. I receive your forgiveness. And now I pray, help me to live for you with the help of Jesus and the Spirit whom you provide. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name, as I'm commanded to pray, I pray, Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, let us know. Just drop us a line on our Facebook page or contact us over Twitter. We'd love to get some resources to you. And I'll be continuing this Jesus Christ is Lord series over the next few weeks as we prepare our souls for this Advent season. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Lordship of Christ Part 2 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, those who encountered Jesus of Nazareth met someone who knew everything about them. And those who meet him now experience the same thing. The King of the Universe knows you and loves you. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.